Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Life with Graft versus Host Disease, or GVHD, Post-Allogenetic Stem Cell or Bone Marrow Transplantation, New Treatment Approaches. Um, and today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support, not only of this program, but many of the programs that we do. Um, now, we have um, a lot of participants on the call today. We have over 197 participants on the call. I know you're still registering at this moment, but nevertheless, this is what the count is at the moment. Um, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Iraq, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, um, I do want to ask you a few questions just to start. And we've started doing this for about a year now. Um, and it's a way for us to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. So I'm going to start with our first question. And our first question is, on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand how graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, develops and the different types of GVHD. Again, 1 is the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of finding GVHD early, including the signs and symptoms of GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the current standard of care for managing GVHD and new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. Um, I understand how to manage quality of life concerns, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And I really want to thank you all for participating in this. It really, uh, you're really helping us to better plan programs going forward by answering these questions. So thank you so much. And now, moving on to our wonderful speakers. And so our first speaker um, is Dr. Yibin Chen, and Dr. Chen is the Director, Hemopoietic cell, cell Transplant and Cell Therapy Program, Carr J. Rogers Endowed Scholar, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Chen will be addressing what is graft-versus-host disease, post-allogenetic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, understanding how GVHD develops, finding GVHD early in the context of COVID-19, common signs and symptoms of GVHD, types of GVHD, chronic and acute, and current standard of care for managing GVHD. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chen. Hi, uh, thank you, Carolyn, for the kind introduction and welcome to all of our listeners today. Thanks for the time. Uh, I. All the topics that were just listed, I will try and summarize. Uh, I've been given approximately 14 minutes, so I will <laughs> I'll try and get that done. Um, so I, I guess 
we're all here to learn about graft versus host disease. You know, this is um, this is a disease that's unique and specific to allogeneic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation. It's the disease that many of us, when when we are training as physicians, get interested in, and the reason why uh, we go into transplantation. So, so, so what is it exactly? Well, it it really gets into you know why why we do a allogeneic uh, stem cell or bone marrow transplant to begin with. Uh, the vast majority of our patients have an underlying blood cancer or hematological malignancy, and we generally do a bone marrow transplant uh, for a potential curative purpose, uh, and that cure, we believe, relies mostly on the ability of donor blood cells or donor white blood cells to attack uh, any cancer or malignancy that's left, and we hope that that response is what uh, carries the day and ultimately cures disease uh, for many of our patients. Uh, inherent to that, though, is that, uh, you know, donors are not, for the most part, identical twins. And even though donors are very closely matched to recipients in many transplants, uh, they are uh, different people. And, and, and so what happens is that uh, even though the donor immune system uh, may be able to attack the underlying cancer, uh, oftentimes that donor immune system is able to attack uh, the host's or the recipient's healthy body from within. Uh, and that is, and that causes uh, graft-versus-host disease. Now, every recipient, as, as many of our listeners know, receives a, a, some sort of preventative approach to prevent graft-versus-host disease. But even despite this, a good proportion of our uh, patients will ultimately go on to develop some sort of significant graft-versus-host disease. Graft-versus-hosties comes in two flavors, uh, and I'll talk about this throughout uh, these topics. Uh, one is called acute, meaning it happens faster and happens earlier, generally within the first three, if not six months after transplant. And the other type is called chronic, and that generally happens later, out past three months, all the way out to even ye years out. It, the chronic generally happens slower, and uh, oftentimes patients remain on medications for a long time afterwards. Um, you know, how, how how it develops is interesting. You know, if anybody knows that, I'd, I'd you know, I'd love to listen. I think we, we think we know part of it, and we think we have somewhat of an understanding, but there's still a lot of uh, progress and a lot of research to be done. I, you know, very early on, the model was that uh, when patients underwent transplant, uh, you know, that week before a patient receives their cells, uh, there's always uh, chemotherapy or radiation given uh, to not only uh, kill cancer more effectively, but also get rid of the recipient's immune system so they can accept the donor's cells. Uh, that type of regimen called the conditioning regimen does create some inflammation and sets up certain organs uh, to be able to be a target of immune response. Once donor cells are infused into the recipient, those donor cells go to these inflamed areas uh, and some of these donor cells, because uh, the job of, of an immune system is to attack what is not oneself, so some of these donor cells will ultimately recognize the recipient's tissues as foreign. And ultimately, just like any other immunological response, meaning something like fighting an infection or something else, the immune system will become activated, these cells will then circulate and come back to the site of activation and cause their damage. And that's and that's how we think graft-versus-host disease happens, and that's why giving prevention right around that time is critical to how we prevent graft-versus-host disease. But, but there are other mechanisms. Uh, you know, why some patients develop graft-versus-host disease and others don't is a big mystery, and how do certain outside factors, uh, such as infections that happen during transplant or the state of the microbiome, meaning diversity of the bacteria in one's body or other external events, uh, uh, influence this. I think all of that is trying to, is, is a topic of research as we go. You know, I, I think um, in terms of symptoms, you know, acute graft versus host disease, as, as many of you know, in the first few months, uh, you, it, it's based, your, your uh, healthcare team that sees you in follow-up will ask you these questions. They'll always ask you if you have a skin rash. They'll always ask you how your bowel movements are. Those are the two most common symptoms of acute graft-versus-host disease, which is a rash or diarrhea. Other symptoms could be nausea or a, com uh, a complete lack of appetite. Uh, and the liver can be involved as well, but that mainly is just asymptomatic elevations in your liver function tests. 
those are the main symptoms of acute graft-versus-host disease that we're trying to figure out. Skin, by far the most common, and lower GI disease as diarrhea uh, being the second most common. Chronic graft-versus-host disease is far more complicated. Uh, it is extremely heterogeneous. It's different for all patients. It can involve almost every organ of the body. Um, I tend to think of chronic graft-versus-host disease as two two sort of um, pathways. One is the classic chronic graft-versus-host disease disease, which most commonly involves uh, dry eyes and dry mouth, uh, skin rashes that are not uh, red but look more like eczema or psoriasis. Th those are the three most common types of symptoms. There can be lung involvement that can manifest a shortness of breath, and there can be uh, fascia involvement, and fascia being connected tissue underneath your skin, so that presents as thickened skin oftentimes uh, can influence your range of motion. But there's a whole host of other manifestations of chronic graft-versus-host disease that behave like uh, autoimmune disease that we see outside of transplantation. And I think this just reflects the fact that the immune system is a bit out of whack during chronic graft-versus-host disease. And so I think the, that's why there's so many symptoms of chronic graft-versus-host disease because of all of these manifestations. I think, you know, one one question that that that, that has been asked is, is there anything, uh, you know, in the context of COVID-19 that has influenced how we recognize or see graft-versus-host disease? You know, I think we're, we're hopefully getting back uh, to direct inpatient health care, because I think that's essential for taking care of our transplant patients. I think telehealth and virtual visits has uh, certainly been a benefit in, in a lot of situations, and certainly for, for our patients who live uh, very far away. Uh, certainly, that's that's been super helpful. But but I will also say that uh, you know telehealth prevents direct examination of of the patient. I, I, I'm oftentimes struggling to see a rash through the Zoom camera or FaceTime. I oftentimes can't see uh, the mucosa of the mouth appropriately, and I oftentimes can't measure range of motion and feel someone's skin. And all those things are essential to recognizing and figuring out graft-versus-host disease, not just for diagnosis, but also super important to understand if a patient is truly responding to treatment. You know, should we taper medicines? Should we change medicines? And so forth. So I, I think certainly uh, my message to my patients has been that these virtual visits, while great for a lot of things, do not take the place of direct examination uh, and trying to figure out, because uh, assessment, direct in-person assessment is super key uh, for patients with graft-versus-host disease. You know, lastly, I, you know, I think talking about sort of the standards of care, you know, unfortunately for the last few decades, the standards of care for acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease remain high-dose uh, systemic steroids. Um, many of you are familiar with this. We uh, use prednisone uh, as our standard of care or its IV equivalent when oral medicines are not uh, possible to give. For, for acute graft-versus-host disease in general, if you have skin, skin manifestations, we can get away with oral prednisone alone, um, and, and hopefully patients can remain as an outpatient. For, uh, for, for patients with lower GI involvement, these are the patients that get readmitted to the hospital and oftentimes the stay is several weeks uh, to uh, resolve such a situation. Acute graft-versus-host disease tends to require a lot of supportive care. You know, steroids, while they can be very good to treat something, have their have multiple downsides to it in terms of what what uh, what toxicities it can cause. And certainly supportive care uh, from the beginning, uh, from a nutrition, from a physical therapy, from an occupational therapy point of view, super, super uh, important. Uh, to maintain everything else while we treat the underlying graft-versus-host disease. For acute graft-versus-host disease, traditionally, if, if steroids did not work or there's a suboptimal response to steroids, traditionally, we, we, uh, you know, we added more drugs to suppress the immune system because we believe that since graft-versus-host disease was an immune attack of donor cells on the recipient, uh, we had to give more agents or methods to knock down the donor immune system. So, so uh, this disease could be treated. Uh, these days, um, we're uh, moving away from that because that ultimately didn't seem to work all that well and resulted in a lot of infections. We're moving, we're moving more towards targeting uh, certain pathways of inflammation uh, that we believe are important in graft-versus-host disease, and this is where research has truly helped us figure out what pathways to target and then developing certain agents. We're, 
we're fortunate that for whatever reason that uh, modern pharmaceutical companies have taken a big interest in graft versus host disease. I mean, they're they're sponsoring this session, uh, but they've also sponsored a lot of research and poured um, a good amount of investment in terms of resources to help us move forward in what we do. And there's now multiple clinical trials for graft versus host disease, whereas in the past it was difficult to even find one. Um, it, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had our first FDA approval of a of a drug for acute graft versus host disease, that being ruxolitinib, or otherwise known as Jacopy, and that's approved for patients who had a suboptimal response to steroids. And that was, while while not a home run, it certainly uh, has benefited a lot of patients and super exciting for the field in terms of uh, more agents or access and options for our patients and something that clearly shown by the large clinical trials to have a positive effect for a good percentage of patients. The other options we still use are certain monoclonal antibodies against certain pathways targeting inflammatory markers or possibly uh, lymphocyte trafficking, meaning how white blood cells get places. Uh, this modality called photophoresis, uh, which certainly has helped as well. And I think the future is bright to figure out how we treat acute graft versus host disease better. For chronic graft versus host disease, uh, we, we, we tend to focus on local therapy as much as possible, meaning if there's disease of the eyes or mouth, we tend to work with our colleagues in ophthalmology and oral medicine and use local drops or local rinses. Uh, when, when the disease becomes, uh, you know, more, more organs than that, we move to systemic therapy. And that also, again, involves prednisone, uh, generally at a lower dose than what we use for acute, but the course is often much longer for chronic than acute. Unfortunately, you know, for a lot of patients with chronic graft versus host disease, I think the reality is that uh, it is a long course, and I think recent data would suggest that probably over two-thirds of patients with chronic graft versus host disease who do start on steroids will ultimately not be able to get off of them for a long period of time, you know, and that, that that's just real data that we pulled together recently, and I think part, a lot of that we should understand and read and probably um, set our expectations and help our patients frame our expectations knowing where this is. But hopefully, uh, with more research and newer treatments, we'll go on to better outcomes. I mean, I think we're looking forward to days when we don't have to use steroids at all for certain subsets of patients, uh, given that other drugs will be proved to be uh, better and safer. In the last couple of years, we also had our first FDA approval for chronic graft-versus-host disease, and this is a drug called Ibrutinib, uh, which is approved for patients in the suboptimal response to steroids as well. Excitingly, uh, many of us expect there will be two more approvals this year in chronic graft-versus-host disease, uh, agent one, uh, ruxolitinib, the same drug that's approved for acute, and also an, a newer drug called Belimosidil, uh, which many of us have participated in clinical trials for. And so we look forward to the FDA's decision on both of these agents in the next few months and uh, ultimately hope it will provide more options for our patients. Um, and we do continue to use other agents that we have. And again, just like acute, we've, we've moved away from the approaches that suppress the immune system broadly, but try and target specific pathways uh, in chronic graft-versus-host disease as well. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's where we stand in the current standard. You know, obviously there are, uh, we're all trying to do cl clinical trials that Dr. Mapara will talk more about, uh, but I would encourage you to have sort of frank conversations with uh, your clinical team as to what they expect and if there are newer approaches that, that uh, they may have that may be applicable. It's an exciting time uh, in graft versus host disease research, but excitement will only go as far as uh, if, uh, if we're ultimately able to improve the outcomes for our patients. So I thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Chen. That was really outstanding and really set the context for the program today and just a really just an, a really an outstanding presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Marcus Mapara. And Dr. Mapara is Professor of Medicine, Columbia University Medical Center, Director, Bone Marrow Transplantation and Cell Therapy Program, College of Physicians and Surgeons. And Dr. Mapara will be addressing new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD, the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments, clinical trial updates, how research increases treatment options, 
key questions to ask your healthcare team about GVHD, including follow-up appointments, follow-up care and appointments, communicating with healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of good questions. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mapara. Yeah, thanks so much, Carolyn. It's really a pleasure to participate again um, in this program. And I think Dr. Chen really did an outstanding job in really, you know, um, uh, laying out the the issues. And uh, there will obviously be some perhaps overlap in what I'm telling you, but I think it's going to be, uh, um, uh, nevertheless, I think quite interesting to see how those two topics then will merge. So um, so uh, with regard to the, the question of, you know, what, new approaches do we have to to treat GVHD? I think it's always important to always consider, obviously, the first step would be to not have GVHD in the first place, right? So, therefore, I think one important approach is currently being uh, studied and is, I think, uh, not yet, has not yet really, I think, met our overall expectations. What can we do to really prevent GVHD? And so, to try to... um, prevent that patients, you know, in a fairly significant proportion do develop GVHD, which is still at the moment, given uh, the current uh, uh, approaches, still unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, pretty much a fact, you know, in a high proportion of patients. And um, the um, this is directly related, obviously, in trying to tailor uh, a prevention to the different transplant scenarios and to the different transplant settings. And that also, of course, includes you know, what type of donor do we have? How closely is the donor matched? And uh, that has definitely um, uh, impacted, and I think we have seen a tremendous, um, uh, I think, increase in the number of transplants being done with mismatched transplants, given the fact that there has been significant advances made in the last 15 years in really allowing using those mismatched transplants. Because as Dr. Chen laid out, the more immunogenetic disparate the donor and the recipient are, the higher the risk of GVHD. And therefore, in, you know, let's say 15, 20, or over 20 years ago, really doing transplants even from half-matched siblings was really very, very problematic and relied on completely eliminating all the immune cells from the graft, which caused GVHD. And that was, however, directly associated with a significant increase in the development of infections. Um, one approach which really was, I think, in my eyes, uh, crucial in allowing to to really extend transplant to those mismatched donors was the use of a very old chemotherapy drug called cyclophosphamide, which is basically a a chemotherapy drug which kills all cells which are dividing, but is particularly uh, damaging to uh, to lymphocytes. Um, And so the the approach which has been uh, spearheaded at the group in the um, uh, at Johns Hopkins, is that um, uh, that drug cyclophosphamide is given on day three and four after the transplant, the time point when the immune cells of the donor really start to expand after they more or less you know uh, came into contact with the host cells, especially what is called antigen-presenting cells. So these are the cells which trigger an immune response, and giving this drug cyclophosphamide after the transplant, which in the beginning sounds counterintuitive, has really been able to, to therefore now be able to use what is called haploidentical donors. So this has been, in my eyes, a major breakthrough and was really done and is a, is a prime example, you know, how carefully designed studies started in, uh, in fact, even in, in preclinical animal mouse studies was then taken through clinical trials in, uh, in, in patients early on first in, in smaller uh, single center trials and then is now basically being tested in large-scale uh, 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 multi-center trials. And this approach has shown to be very, very effective. So this, uh, I think this is a prime example how if you use a good approach, you can prevent GVHD, and you can even use that to broaden the availability of donors to do um, um, Other approaches which are now more targeting on uh, uh, trying to identify risk factors of patients who are at risk of developing GVHD. And this is based on trying to identify biomarkers, so more or less blood tests, which would predict is a patient at risk of developing GVHD 
and would that be potentially a very bad GVHD and could we then intervene? So these are still open questions, but that is active research going on, trying to identify predictors in the blood of the patients, which would then allow to uh, uh, target patients who are at high risk of developing GVHD. Um, the, the, the other approach of uh, trying to, to get on top of GVHD is, as Dr. Chen mentioned, of course, is to try to further improve treatment of GVHD. Um, and as you just heard, steroids are still the mainstay, really, in treating GVH, graft-versus-host disease. And the problem, of course, with that is that GVHD is a wonder drug, but the problem really is that if you cannot taper GVHD, if you cannot taper the steroids, you really run into a lot of long-term health issues. And that is particularly true for patients with chronic GVHD, as, as, as Dr. Chen mentioned. So really having new approaches which are not global immunosuppressive, but which are much more targeted, I think really have changed in my eyes in the last two, three years, uh, the playing field. Um, and uh, Dr. Chen already mentioned uh, uh, one drug, which I am particularly interested in because that has been a topic of my research over the last two decades, is really this uh, drug called ruxolitinib, or these are the so-called JAK inhibitors, because they target a pathway which is very crucial Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure where, kind of, unfortunately, the line dropped. Um, but uh, I was just uh, starting to talk about um, uh, the role of roxolitinib again and the JAK inhibitors, uh, which are really, in my eyes, a game changer to some extent. Of course, you know, things can always be better, but they really have made it possible to, uh, you know, first intervene in patients who are not responding well to steroids. And, you know, um, as Dr. Chen mentioned, there will be more studies coming out that this would be a very good drug uh, and will even potentially get FDA approval for, for chronic GVHD. And so those drugs have been really, I think, enormously helpful in achieving what, we, what I just mentioned uh, before I dropped off, is that it's really trying to minimize the amount of steroids which we have to give to a patient. And all of those advances really have been achieved through carefully designed clinical trials. So participation in clinical trials is therefore, in my eyes, the key interest for every patient to go through a transplant because those trials really will allow, first of all, for the patient to get access to new promising drugs. At the same time, obviously, there's an altruistic perspective that you, you know, participating in the trial will really help the, you know, the next generation of patients to really um, identify the, uh, the optimal uh, treatment uh, uh, approaches. So um, those trials are being either conducted in the setting of, you know, smaller central trials, or I think one of the benefits we really have in our transplant community is the so-called DMT uh, uh, trials consortium and network, which really allows large transplant programs to come together and uh, conduct uh, multi-center trials, first with the, with the goal of exploration, but also then once you have identified, a, a, you know, for example, a good molecule or a good drug, to then test it really in a larger cohort of patients. So participating in those trials, in my eyes, is really key to the progress uh, for the transplant patients and really has, I think, enabled those, uh, you know, breakthroughs which we just discussed. Um, in terms of um, uh, really going into how the pandemic has really changed our clinical practice, I think um, we all went through, I think, a period of time last year where we really had to more or less, you know, improvise and come up with, you know, solutions to problems, which, you know, obviously were not there before. And um, one, uh, and, you know, obviously practicing in New York, which was the hardest hit in the, you know, uh, last year in the spring, you know, we really had to be, you know, we wanted to be, you know, able to provide, you know, the best possible care. At the same time, obviously protecting our patients. And one part of that protection was to really try to minimize uh, uh, the time when patients, you know, have to come into the city and be exposed to the potential risks of, of, of getting COVID. So, um, so the, uh, the telehealth and telemedicine appointments really played a huge role in allowing uh, a close uh, monitoring of patients, um, which otherwise would have been potentially more risky for patients to come in. However, as Dr. Chen already, you know, laid out, obviously GBHD is something where you, it's very difficult to make the diagnosis just by looking at a monitor, right, and showing the, you know, showing you the skin through the, through the monitor. 
So therefore, the way how we have basically done that was really trying to minimize appointments, but still have, you know, the early post-transplant period, at least one a visit a, a week available, but then, you know, tag that with, you know, with uh, in the following week, if possible, with a telemed uh, a visit, and then also having the options of patients going to remote lab sites so they didn't pay, patients didn't have to come in to get the labs drawn. And using that approach of telehealth visit with uh, using local laboratories, um, we were able to really, um, uh, I think, you know, uh, make it very safe for early patients early after transplant. And, um, and I think, obviously, what really comes to play, obviously, as well, is that all transplant patients are, I think, the world's experts in social distancing. And so I think that might help to really minimize the risk of patients really getting COVID early on after transplant. Um, obviously, a number of things needed to change in that early period of time. You needed to look at donors, were donors available? So some practices were changed in terms of unrelated donors that we needed to make sure that we have the, 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 the graft on hand here before starting conditioning the chemotherapy. So a number of, of practices really had to be completely uh, uh, um, redesigned you know, for, the, for, the, for the reality of COVID of last year. So I think telemed visit definitely in my eyes, although will not be able to substitute the, uh, the, the actual visit, but I think they will be in my eyes a, a huge, uh, uh, I think, improvement in terms of uh, uh, having patients stay in touch um, and um, to, at the end of the day, provide, I think, also good care um, while really making it more convenient for patients. So, again, while it's not able to substitute for a complete physical examination, I think used in the, in the correct context, I think they can be very, very helpful. Um, so in terms of, um, um, you know, what, when you undergo a transplant, what are the, 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 the things to focus on after transplant? And what, what, what to ask your team, obviously, is, is to really lay out a plan uh, after transplant in terms of, you know, what will be the follow-up, um, how often do I need to come in, uh, <clears throat> what other specialties will be involved in my care, um, and again, kind of coming back to Dr. Chen's comments, post-transplant care really is a multidisciplinary affair, right? So especially with chronic GVHD, any organ in the patient can be affected by chronic GVHD. So we really have, for example, at our place, uh, a nice multidisciplinary group of physicians you know, from ophthalmology to the dermatology group to, um, you know, dental care, who really, you know, all play an important role addressing those questions early on after transplant and in the long-term care. So I think from that perspective, the, uh, uh, the multidisciplinary care really is crucial to, 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 uh, uh, to ascertain success after transplant. Um, in terms of um, the long-term follow-up, obviously, and especially with patients with chronic GVHD, quality of life is, an, is a huge issue. And um, that is where I think really patients need to... Um, be you know, very upfront, and sometimes you know uh, topics may kind of not be comfortable to talk about. But I think that is something which is enormously important. And uh, again, having a, a, a team which you know consists of you know of, of experts of even every discipline will be helpful to really uh, allow uh, addressing those issues. You know, one topic, for example, which is in my eyes you know enormously important is also mental health after transplant. And we know that a lot of patients do develop. Um, something similar to, to almost PTSD after the transplant. And so having uh, an expert in, you know, and we, for example, in our program, we have a psychiatrist who's dedicated to our program, help patients go through the transplant. In fact, we also um, utilize that psychiatrist to also, in fact, help preparing the patient for the transplant so that the patient's already uh, in contact with that you know, psychiatrist uh, before transplant and then can use that psychiatrist as a resource after transplant. So I think really having a multidisciplinary team, in my eyes, is the key uh, to success after transplant. And so in terms of really uh, achieving you know, success, I think it also, especially now in the times of telehealth visit, it's always, I think, helpful for patients to really think about when they have those appointments, what are the issues, what are the problems, and really uh, write down uh, and have, a, have a, a, a true list, which then can really run off their uh, their their you know runoff and, and discuss with their uh, with their um, uh, with their physicians. I think that is in, especially when you are uh, more or less you know alternating 
inpatient visits with telehealth visits, in my eyes, is really important to almost have a diary of your symptoms to then discuss that with your physician. And um, so I think from that perspective, that is all I have to say at this point. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Maparo. That was really excellent and um, outstanding as well. And um, it really also covered a range of topics, very important to our participants. So I can't thank you enough for this um, excellent presentation. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. <clears throat> and I would just like to say a few words about the services of Cancer Care that you could all access. So um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide services to people throughout the United States. Um, and so what are those free services? Um, we have a staff of 35 oncology social workers, and we have um, a hope line. Many people call us on our hope line, and um, that number is 800-813-4673. And when they call, they will speak to an oncology social worker, and uh, people call for a number of reasons. So one would be that they have a question or concern or they need some support around some issue. Um, so we provide that help to them. Also, people may call because they need financial or practical or co-payment assistance. We also have a case management services that we offer so that if for some reason we don't have the resource you need, we'll be sure to get you the resource that you need. Sometimes it could be in your local community, in your region, or it could be another national organization that we would connect you with. And we won't just give you a list of places that you have to call. We will actually work with you on getting those, getting those needs met. And what are those needs? Sometimes it has to do with adequate food. Um, problems with housing costs, um, problems with workplace issues. Um, it could be any number of issues, and, um, and we can really help address them with you so that you can get those needs met. That's really important. Um, also, um, we do offer online support groups. We offer workshops, of course, like this. These are um, workshops that we offer on a regular basis. We offer about 75 of them a year on different topics, different um, different issues around cancer itself. Um, also, we do programs on specific types of cancer and also issues around cancer survivorships or caregiving, so a lot of different topics. All, I should say all of our services are available to people of all ages um, and also um, with different relationships to cancer. So people could be themselves living with cancer. Some could be caregivers, partners, adult children, um, siblings. Um, so any relationship, um, we would um, we have groups for people, the online support groups, and so we have services for everyone. So that gives you a thumbnail sketch of our services and also for those of you who are listening internationally as well or on the call today internationally, our website, www.cancercare.org, um, you can post your question there. Although we're, we are a national organization, we will help to link you to a resource in your community or whatever your question or concern is, we will try to help you with it. Um, with that being said, now before we move on to our um, to the Q&A, which would be the next part of this program, I just have a few last questions to ask all of you um, and um, very much appreciate your um, answering these questions because it helps us to see, um, to have, have a sense of what you've taken away from the program today. Although the program is not over yet, but just for the presentation part of it. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned, in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of how graft-versus-host disease develops and the different types of GVHD. So one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of finding GVHD early, including the signs and symptoms of GVHD. And again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the current standard of care for managing GVHD and new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. 
And after this question, we just have two more. And so the next question is, <clears throat> as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my ability to work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage quality of life concerns, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. <clears throat> And the last question is, as a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for GVHD. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these, um, in this, in these questions. It really helps us to better plan programs going forward, um, and um, I really appreciate um, your, your answering these questions. It really helps us a great deal, and will make your the programs better for each of you as well. Now, with this being said, we now do have uh, time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, um, uh, Michelle, if you could just uh, explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So we have a question um, for Dr. Chen. Um, uh, from this one, our online participants, are there any risks that contribute to GVHD? How can I minimize these? Could you ask that question again? Are, are there any risks? Are there any concerned? risks um, that contribute to GVHD, and how can I minimize these risks? All right. So I and um, Dr. Mapara should feel free to chip in after me. But uh, I mean, I think that uh, your your transplant team headed by your transplant physician will look at your case and ultimately based on the underlying disease and the donor sort of pick a platform that they believe best, uh, I guess, balances everything. Where, you know, what I didn't include in my talk was that, uh, you know, the GVHD, while while being a complication, we certainly try and prevent and treat. It, it uh, Large studies over many years and repeated in many series have shown that there is a silver lining uh, that any graft-versus-host disease, specifically chronic, uh, does reduce the uh, chance of the underlying uh, cancer coming back. So it reduces the chance of relapse, and that and that sort of makes intuitive sense. It shows us that the uh, the donor cells can attack the healthy body, and the underlying cancer is uh, very closely related to the healthy body, and 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 so there's usually a parallel attack. Uh, on the malignancy. So I guess I will come to answer the question. All I'm saying is that I think that your transplant team will sort of choose this package that balances everything to ultimately uh, try and get uh, you the best outcome. Um, in that package, we'll include what type of donor as well as what type of cocktail or regimen to prevent graft-versus-host disease. So the best thing any patient can do is A, be sure to be very compliant with any medicines that you're prescribed to prevent graft-versus-host disease. These, these include the medicines themselves and also other medicines that you're taking for other reasons that oftentimes have interactions with, with your graft-versus-host disease medicines. And your transplant team will fo often follow levels of those medicines very closely, and we know it's really important to keep those levels right within range. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is to uh, have a constant dialogue with your transplant team so they know what symptoms you're feeling. Oftentimes, you know, you heard me say the most common symptoms of acute graft-versus-hosties are a rash and diarrhea. I mean, guess what? I think we've all had a rash and diarrhea in our lives at some point. So clearly every rash and every loose bowel movement is not graft-versus-host disease. At the same time, I think your team will want to know if things are changing to ultimately help best advise you and figure out. You know, I, I do think it is better to recognize it early, you know, and be able to figure stuff out in terms of getting treatment 
um, you know, sooner rather than later. And so I think those are the two best things is really be compliant with your medications and have, an, have open lines of communication with your transplant team. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Mappar, did you want to add to that? No, I think, I think Dr. Chen did a great job. I think really, I think really it's all about uh, discussing with your, with your physician team and the entire transplant team really what is the best platform, taking into consideration the, um, you know, the, the donors, uh, you know, what type of donors being used. And I think I cannot stress enough really, really trying to be as, you know, I think, you know, really following the recommendations, especially in terms of the drugs which suppress the immune system, to really make sure that you have the appropriate levels, you know, when you, which are needed to prevent GBHD. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Mapar. Uh, can someone with GVHD get the COVID vaccine? Should I consult my care team first? And we had discussed this actually before the call started, so if you could address this, Dr. Mapara. Yeah, so this is, and uh, obviously Dr. Chen will also weigh in here. So this is really, I think at this point, you know, as a lot of things we're dealing with in the setting of COVID, a lot of uncharted territory. I think um, just as a general principle, Patients who are, let's say, three months out of the transplant or six months out of the transplant, and it could be considered uh, for the vaccine. Obviously, having uh, patients still being actively treated for GVHD with drugs, for example, like steroids, that will have a high, high risk of mitigating the vaccine response. Right? So that is one of the challenges. Um, and at the moment, we don't have any good data which is currently being collected to really guide us, you know, when would, when would be the optimal time point um, <clears throat> for the vaccine and, you know, what will potentially, you know, side effects in particular in terms of, you know, transplant patients be. You know, there is considerable, you know, there is concern that potentially, you know, the vaccine may perhaps indeed in, 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 induce a flare of, uh, of GBHD, but at the moment they're really a little bit... Um, I think stuck that we lack a lot of data because everything obviously is so brand new. So from our perspective, how we just practically handle it. So I go by the by the philosophy that you know a little bit little protection would be that will be better than no protection. So I try to vaccinate the patients early on, um, and we have had patients who have been on you know certain anti-GVHD drugs like you know for example the Jacopy or the Roxalitinib, and we have seen. Uh, uh, antibody responses. So I think at the moment we really need to get a clearer answer. We need more data. We need to show, you know, what patients can be vaccinated and which patients will not uh, respond well to, uh, to to the vaccine. Excellent. And Dr. Chen, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I agree uh, fully with Dr. Mopara. I mean, I think this, just so everyone knows, I mean, it, we don't know the right answer. Uh, this is a common topic that we discuss amongst our colleagues uh, locally and nationally and, uh, and, and with our patients. There are local and national studies going on in collecting samples from our patients to, that will hopefully better answer these questions going forward in terms of how well our patients respond and why. But my, my recommendations, so, so we don't feel that the vaccine is harmful in any way at the moment, except for possibly causing a mild flare, uh, most commonly in chronic graft-versus-associated symptoms, which, which, in all honesty, any vaccine can cause. It's more that if, we, if you receive the vaccine at the wrong time and you don't have a response, then it, it gives you maybe a false sense of security or you won't be able to get another shot of the vaccine later. So we, we encourage people to receive their first dose uh, at least three months after the transplant, you know, and, um, and, and to go from there. I, you know, I think the studies that we're all uh, doing right now will hopefully be able to answer uh, the questions going forward. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and there's a question um, for um, uh, actually for Dr. Dr. Chen. Um, so, does the probability of getting GVHD decrease with a sibling donor? And there's another part to it about just to repeat what percentage of LO patients get GVHD. Yeah, I mean, so if you, I'll I'll answer the, the uh, second question first. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at 100 patients undergoing allogeneic transplant and you take all comers, 
I know our data and our data would say probably about 25 to 30% uh, have some uh, form of acute graft versus host disease that requires us to do something, you know, and the vast majority of those are skin rashes that can be easily treated. The minority of those patients are the lower GI disease that cause diarrhea that, that, that certainly causes the majority of the morbidity uh, and result in repeat hospitalization. So that, that number is around 25 to 30% historically. And then long-term, uh, probably about 35 to 40% will have some clinically significant chronic graft-versus-host disease with half of those cases being fairly mild and the other half requiring us to uh, think more and continue on other lines of therapy uh, for the long run. You know, it's the field is a moving target, right? You heard Dr. Mapara mentioned one of the biggest advances in the last couple of decades is this post-transplant cyclophosphamide regimen that's that's made uh, transplants from mismatched donors uh, very safe and very standard, and now that's being tested in fully matched donors as well to, to, to see if that, that can become the standard of care. So I think your risk for graft-versus-host disease depends a lot, certainly on your donor, um, the type of donor being uh, matched or related or unrelated, uh, and then certainly depends on the regimen that's employed for graft-versus-host disease. And, and as I sort of implied before, you know, we have an, uh, different appetites for graft-versus-host disease depending on the patients. Um, and if I can say sort of if, if patients have very high-risk disease and we feel they may need a little bit of graft-versus-host disease to help us ultimately cure the cancer, then our, then our appetite is greater uh, to tolerate a little bit of graft-versus-host disease, if you will, because we think that ultimately will will uh, translate into a better outcome. If if a patient doesn't have cancer and we're transplanting for, say, a uh, uh, a benign he or a non-malignant hematological disease, then, then we pull out all the stops to prevent graft-versus-host disease uh, because they don't benefit at all. So it is um, it is a calculation that, that we make for every patient, uh, and the risk is different depending on those factors. H historically, yes, if, if your uh, donor was a fully matched sibling, then you had the lowest risk of graft-versus-host disease, you know, if using the same regimen across other donors. But we have different interventions we can use now, and we balance these things based on what we think will provide the best outcome. Awesome. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. And um, for um, this question for Dr. Um, Mapara, what is a telltale sign that I should immediately report to my doctor or care team? Um, I get a symptom or a sign that perhaps um, that may my merit there having to look into this in terms of GBHD. Right. So, so in principle, I think there are several, I think, in my eyes, which are critical. So obviously, as in all cancer patients, especially also true for, for BMT patients, obviously it's fever, right? So if you have a fever, I mean, you need to call your, your, your um, team right away in the middle of the night, you know, whenever, when, you know, really right away. Um, in terms of GBHD, going back to what Dr. Chen said, Obviously, you know, if you start having diarrhea um, and um, if you start having, you know, a, a rash, those are definitely alarm signs that you really should immediately contact your, um, uh, your, um, uh, your, your treatment team. And, um, and the, um, the other sign, especially in patients, you know, with, uh, um, you know, with morphonic GBHD, one of the, the major concerns there is if it affects the lung. And so, therefore, shortness of breath, coughing are also, I think, very, you know, big alarm signs, which you should really reach out to, to your team. So to summarize again, Thank fever, you. diarrhea, skin rashes, shortness of breath. So that I think as we to emergent symptoms which you, need to, uh, which you need to directly report. Excellent. Thank you. And um, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to just um, give us a takeaway point. So just a sentence or two from what they said. I'll start with Dr. Chen and then Dr. Mapara. Just a takeaway that you'd like them to leave the program with today. Um, uh, so, um, Dr. Chen, if you would go first. I mean, I think that the, the takeaway, I think, is that there, there's a lot of uh, ongoing investigation and exciting research in graft versus host disease at the moment. 
And the hope is that this research and these current trials will will be able to be translated into tangible improvement for our patients. You know, I think that we've 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 already seen the last two years that um, with new well, last three years new new approvals of agents in both acute and chronic, and we're expecting a couple of more this year. And that's 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 real progress. Um, I echo Dr. Mapara's statement that. Ultimately, we do want to prevent what we believe to be harmful graft-versus-host disease, and so the, the research and trials being done there is is, is as, as exciting as what's going on for treatment. Um, but for patients who have graft-versus-host disease, you know, I think especially chronic graft-versus-host disease, I mean, I think it's having a frank conversation with your care team about what this means uh, what we know now about sort of, uh, you know, par part of that disease once it sets in, there's part of it that's reversible and part of it that's probably not once once we start treating it. It's oftentimes difficult to know what is reversible and what's not, and ultimately it depends on if if you respond to treatments or not. But I think it's having these uh, an open dialogue with your team so you can understand how your team is thinking about it and adjust to uh, these expectations. I do think once someone has significant chronic graft-versus-host disease, it's uh, it's rare that life gets back to normal again, you know, with our current treatments. I'm hopeful that, that more uh, can achieve that as we develop better ones. Uh, but I think we do need to better frame that for our patients and uh, have more frank conversations about it. So takeaways here is sort of a lot of exciting research going on. Uh, I think there will be vast improvements in prevention and treatment in the, in the next five years. Uh, but a lot of it is also upon us to have the right conversation with our patients. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Chen. And Dr. Mapara? Yeah, so I think so. I think I think that is I think already a, a fantastic summary. I think. And my eyes. So in my eyes, I think the only point which I would want to raise again is that is really you should have a very frank conversation with your uh, team about um, uh, the COVID vaccination, what it means, what you can expect, what you cannot expect, and uh, really discuss that um, uh, with, you, with, your, with, your, with, your, with your primary team. And obviously, I'm a strong advocate that everyone really should try to get the vaccine. Um, and again, my take always is, you know, little protection is better than no. So I'm really, for my patients, trying to aggressively vaccinate them as, as long as I can think that they will have a response without really actually knowing that. But you know, I think in the next six months, we may have tests to really look at that in more detail. Um, and then, you know, we also have the ability of potentially doing cross-platform vaccinations, meaning that if you are vaccinated with the one, let's say with J&J, &J, you can get then the Pfizer uh, or vice versa. And that will allow us then, once we have the appropriate tests, then to really look quantitatively how well is your immune system really responding to the vaccine and would that mean that you would need more vaccinations so i think these are things which are at the moment still going on um, and for which we don't have a whole lot of answers at this point but i think you should engage in those discussions with your team Excellent. Thank you very much. Gosh, this has been a phenomenal call. I want to thank both Dr. Chen and Dr. Mapara. Um, just phenomenal presentations. And I want to thank our participants for phenomenal questions. It was just, um, you know, we've done this program before, but we really have had such really great questions today. Now, I know we could go on for at least another hour or so because there's so many more questions in queue. So I want to address the issues of the questions in queue, first of all. Um, for those of you who asked a question, and and for those of you who didn't get to ask your question, or for those of you who are listening and thought of another question to ask, we would ask you to take what you learned today back to a treating healthcare team so that they can customize what you've learned to you so that that would be helpful to you and um, that's really very important. Um, because ultimately this is a, uh, an hour program and that you're getting information and then and it's credible information, but we want you to then go back to your healthcare team to customize it to you. I think the next thing is that it's really important that each of you, um, it, often things seem to happen, um, not during business hours, but often in the evening, weekends, and holidays. So be sure that when you work with your healthcare team that you have the numbers to call if something were to occur in the evening, in the early morning, weekends, 
um, and holidays. That's really important that you get that information. Um, that's very, very important. If your physician is going on vacation, which is perfectly fine to do, but who is the covering person? So you have that information, you keep it for yourself and whoever else is in your um, network of people to support you. That's really important that you have that information. And for those of you who would like to pursue further services from Cancer Care to get some additional support, please contact Cancer Care. And we will be sending you at the end of the program a survey monkey evaluation. We'd like that you complete the evaluation, but more importantly, we're going to also include in that evaluation um, all the uh, any phone numbers, links, anything that we thought that we could provide for you that would give you some additional information um, that would help you with um, making decisions. Most importantly, we would prefer that none of you leave this program feeling that you're alone. Now, it is normal to feel alone and it, um, when dealing with a GVHD or any type of response to any type of cancer experience. However, with COVID, people are feeling a bit more alone. So we want you to now know that you are simply um, a telephone call or a mouse click away, depending on where you are in the world or your preference. And there are some cancer organizations that actually have 24-hour call centers as well. So we will give you all that information so you have places to call in addition to your healthcare team, which nothing can ever take the place of your healthcare team. But there's sometimes when you'd like to get credible information, and we want to be sure that we link you to the places that you can contact for credible information. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.